Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. Uh, Julie, are you prepared for the end of the world? Because uh, it's coming, apparently, according to some people. Oh, right, the Mayan calendar thing. Yeah, there's the Mayan calendar thing that mm-hmm. says uh, basically this December uh, the world's going to end. Then we have, of course, the uh, the rapture predictions. Right. That, uh, <laughs> predictions that hold that the world wa- will have actually ended by the time this publishes. So I don't know if this will pub. This may publish in a post-rapture world. <clears throat> well, I guess you haven't seen my bumper sticker yeah? over what, here. What's it say? That when the rapture comes, this podcast booth will be evacuated. Oh, okay. Yeah, well, it's true. I, I mean, we, it's been hanging here for like we, a year. We won't be here because uh, because we can't. I can't do it by myself. Uh, I'm sticking around. I've uh, actually ordered a rapture-proof suit on uh, over the internet. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like lined with lead and uh, and heretical bubble wrap. Uh, bubble wrap. Each bubble in the bubble wrap contains uh, a, a tiny occultist icon that uh, helps protect my soul from leaving my body in the case of the rapture. This way I can stick around and document the events. Yeah, I think yeah. that's probably going to work. Just in case. And if it doesn't happen, well, then I just spend a lot of money on a weird suit. Wouldn't be the first person. Uh, you wouldn't be the first person either, yeah. right? Turns out that the end days have been a concept that, uh, that predate Christ, right? Because we typically, when we oh, th- yeah. talk about end days or the rapture apocalypse, we usually think about it, um, being mired in religion, this concept. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty, I mean, the whole book of revelations thing and all its crazy imagery, uh, I mean, that, that is, that certainly and an, to Western audiences is the predominant idea. Uh, like I remember growing up in, in, I was we were, when my family lived up in uh, Newfoundland, Canada. We had we attended this small church. I remember the the preacher talking one day about like the end times were going to come. Mm-hmm. There was going to be this huge war between the forces of good and evil, and we would be called upon to fight in that war. And I remember being really thrown back by that. And after church, I was asking my mom and dad. I was like, like, is that for real? Are we going to have to? Am I going to have to battle in this <laughs> Are, war? Am I going to just suit up or what? Yeah, that sounds. It sounds kind of awful. I'd rather not do that. And they were like, Yeah, they, don't worry about that. So, were they like, it's a metaphor? No, they were just kind of like, Yeah, don't worry about that. Yeah, it's yeah. probably not going to happen. Okay, so all right. Obviously, today we're talking about apocalypse. Or yes, the many apocalypses that um, have come and gone and never actually occurred, right? And we're right. actually going to talk about or have they. <laughs> Right. Right. Well, who knows? Who knows? Uh, A la Matrix, we're just like hooked up to some sort of alien apocalypse right now. Mm -hmm. Um, And we'll get into some of these ideas, too, because because in many cases, the apocalypse uh, prediction doesn't come to pass. But that doesn't mean people give up on that prediction. Yes. So uh, yes. We'll, we'll get into exactly how that works on a cognitive level. Yep. Yep. Um, but we should also talk about the apocalypse. It's not just in terms of, OK, but this the religious um, thing that we think about, but also um, asteroids, nuclear winters, yes. um, you know, natural phenomena that happens. And people will sit there and say, ah, OK, this must be a sign. Right. And this has been happening forever since there have been humans. Right. Right. There are there are a number of different uh, apocalyptic scenarios. You, of course, have the spiritual ones, like you said, mm-hmm. there are cosmological uh, ones, some of which have a little more uh, validity than others, like the idea of a, a meteor comet hitting the earth and causing extreme uh, damage, wiping out civilizations. Right. Obviously, that has occurred before in the past, not within human history, but mm-hmm. uh, I mean, nothing on a scale enough to wipe us out as a species. But that is it's a possibility, unlike uh, some of the other weirder things uh, that are ideas that have populated the, on the Internet, such as like Planet X colliding with the with Earth, right. um, planetary alignment scenarios that end up 
you know, wiping everything off the face of the planet. Things of that nature are, are a lot more far-fetched, but are at least based in uh, in actual science at some level. Yeah. You know, exaggerated. Yeah. Uh, and then and then there are, of course, economic predictions. Right. You don't have to go far to tune uh, into some uh, economic doom and gloom these days. And granted, ec- economists predicting the future of global economies is a far different uh, kettle of fish than um, a guy in the street corner telling you about when the demonic or UFO invasion is happening. Right. But still, uh, it's it's very much a prediction of things going really, really bad in a very catastrophic manner with dire consequences that people will buy into with their fear. Well, and I think that you, you can't help but look over our shoulder and, and see what might be coming at us or p- try to predict that. And I was just thinking about the panel that I heard on uh, cryptography and this is at the world. This is at the world science festival. Thank Mm -hmm. you. Yeah. And uh, the guy was a retired, uh, I don't know if he was CIA, but he was sitting there saying, this is actually a really big issue. The security issue online, because if certain people wanted to, they could bring down the U S economy and they could, Basically, like close down the grid, close down the economy, and we would have something like 30 days uh, where we could exist in, in a sort of peaceful manner before all hell broke loose and uh, you know, civilization just sort of collapsed on itself. So you hear this, right? You know, and, and it's not just this guy; it's just even someone like, say, Stephen Hawking, right, who couldn't help but say, you know, hey. I'm going to sound the alarm here. Quit talking to the aliens. Yes. Um, a, because if they're anything like us. Yeah. A, if they're anything like us. Th- they're jerks. They're jerks. You know, they, they're really into hierarchies. Um, and B, um, you know, if they do exist, they're probably much more complex than we are in advance. So what will that lead to? Eh. Our doom. Yeah, Jeff Goldblum and uh, Will Smith are not going to be able to fly up there and just stick a disc in the, the mothership to shut it all down. It's going to be a, a far different situation. Yeah, technology has uh, has played a part in a number of uh, predictions. Uh, there's, of course, the the Y2K. That's uh, right. Uh, situation that did not come to pass, but that had people heading for the hills and, and stocking uh, up on water, uh, stocking up on water and beans. If you have a chance, check out the HowStuffWorks.com's uh, article, um, 2012 Apocalypse Survival Guide. That's one I wrote that uh, kind of humorously takes you through 10 of the sort of out there, in many cases, scenarios for how the world is going to end uh, this December. Ah. Yeah. And uh, and some of those are like, there's, great. yeah, there's one based in uh, computer programs trying to to predict the course of events and, uh, and people claiming that these computers have dictated exactly when the world is going to end and it lines right. up in 2012, you know, so. so yeah, we te- just got a clue and you know, right. got an inkling of what they were up to. Yeah, so you, you know, technological, uh, economic, spiritual, political, I mean, there's a, like anything that any kind of movement or, or system that is big enough to fail with dire consequences, people are, uh, and, and have been predicting, uh, failure for ages. Yeah. And before we talk about some good examples of apocalypses, um, or, or, you know, in the past that people have thought would come to pass, uh, let's talk a little bit why we're hardwired to like a really good apocalypse story. Why does it appeal to us? Yeah, because obviously we keep doing these uh, these mental circles for a reason, and right. it's because our brains are are central to it. Yeah, and there's this in this uh, story of the apocalypse. There is a promise of renewal, right? In, in, in many of them, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of like the phoenix from the flame. 
Um, it's an impetus to right our wrongs, right? And there's a moral code in some of these which says that, you know, if I live my life right, then at the rapture, um, you know, I will be spared from the scorched earth. And speaking of scorched earth, I mean, you, you know, if you're talking in secular terms, you could even say that uh, in something like the military, which has scorched earth policies sometimes and applied to warfare, if you take a, a country down, a community down to the studs, you're scorching the earth, there's this idea that you can then fill that void with a renewal for these people. Yeah. Right. Besides dominating them <laughs> to a certain degree. Um, so, I mean, you can you see it in all different areas. Um, but again, it is a sort of a cathartic experience. And I think that that's why people are uh, gravitate to it so much or some people do. Yeah. So many of these systems involve a like a system that is flawed to its core, ultimately mm-hmm. fails. And when it fails, that gives us the room to create a new system. Be that, you know, typically we're talking about a civilization. It's like humans for ages realizing that the that the systems they create or the systems they inhabit are not quite perfect or not uh, completely to their liking. Yeah. And uh, surely if this system were to run its course and have enough uh, rope to hang itself, we'd be able to build some new system that obviously wouldn't be horrible. Well, to your point, um, Isaac Asimov's Book of Facts actually talks about uh, an Assyrian clay tablet that dates back to 2800 B.C. And it was unearthed and it bears the words, Our earth is degenerate in these latter days. There are signs that the world is speedily coming to an end. Bribery and corruption are common. Oh, wow. Okay, so 2800 B.C., Mm -hmm. people are like, you know what? This is this planet, this thing that's going on here on earth. It's just not working out. Surely it will end. Surely the second coming is at hand, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. And it's just uh, one example of, you know, perception of moral decay in society. Uh, but, you know, there's there are a ton of them. Um, Romans saw the A.D. 79 uh, eruption of Mount Vesuvius as a sign that society was about to get its kick in the pants um, when Pompeii went up in smoke. Or excuse me, when Pompeii was actually buried in smoke. Uh, as Yates said again, uh, it's no country for old men, right? People are always looking at the world around them and seeing forces uh, that are a danger to them rising up and uh, and systems that are not working all around them. And patterns, always patterns, patterns right? Yeah, because we, our brains, as we've discussed before, uh, are all about finding patterns. We have to navigate this world of uh, fixed and movable objects, of symbols, of information, of, uh, of social systems. Mm-hmm. And we have to navigate all of this. So we need a brain. We've, we've evolved uh, to have a brain that is uh, ideal for surviving this environment. Well, and also think about Haley's Comet, right? This is another example of something happening, um, getting a lot of press and people not quite understanding what the impact, what they think the impact will be. Haley's Comet, oh my goodness, 1910. People believe that the comet's tail contained a gas that would impregnate the atmosphere and possibly snuff out all life on planet Whoa. Earth. And they began to sell like all sorts of goofy uh, little relics to help uh, <laughs> people survive this event. Oh, wow. You know, so again, yes, people, you can't help it, right? It, it, it depends on how much you know about an event. And then later we have Heaven's Gate. Right, Heaven's who Gate. believe that uh, the comet is going to, is actually uh, signals that the UFO is coming to take us away, or at least take this small selection of believers away. Right. Which had a very, very sad ending, right? Yes. I mean, this, this was, this is the case where they actually all poisoned themselves. Is that right? Uh, yeah, they all committed suicide. Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, the leader, uh, he actually, um, he also had himself, uh, surgically castrated. I don't know why that was a, a prerequisite. Yeah. For the alien ship, <laughs> but, you know. I, 
Yeah, Dude had some issues. <laughs> seriously. Uh, it's not funny, but goodness no, no, gracious. But- uh, another good example is the Seekers, right? Going back to aliens. Yeah, the Seekers are quite an interesting story. This is a small Chicago area cult. Uh, uh, whose members uh, thought that they were communicating with aliens, uh, it's specifically communicating with Sanan- Sananda, uh, who they believed was the um, like a cosmic incarnation of Jesus. Uh, and the leader in all this was this uh, this lady uh, Dorothy Martin, mm-hmm. and uh, so she she had uh, she was basically a a housewife, mm-hmm. uh, like she was not you know there's nothing really spectacular about her life up until this point. But then she picked up a little uh, uh, theosophy, she picked up a little uh, Scientology. Mm-hmm. Uh, she, and, yeah, she was all about the Dianetics, right? Yeah, yeah. And then, uh, by the way, uh, Theosophy is kind of like a, a, a founded in 1875. It's kind of a combination of some elements of Buddhism and Brahmanism and uh, some, some reincarnation thrown in with some spiritual evolution. Yeah. And, uh, and there's some spinoffs, right? Like the Baha'i faith. Yeah, yeah. Although I don't think that they subscribe to aliens. No, I'm, well, I'm not sure. I know Rain Wilson is, uh, is one. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. Huh, okay. Yeah, he has a really cool site called uh, Soul Pancake, I believe. And it's all about like reaching young audiences, getting them talking and discussing like spiritual ideas. Hmm, it's kind of okay. neat. But anyway, so, uh, Dorothy Martin, 54 years old, um, Oak Park, uh, and she, suddenly she starts communicating with these, uh, with these aliens and she learns from them. Uh, she says that, uh, December 21st, 1954 is the day that the seas are going to rise. The continent's going to split and, uh, flying saucers are going to swoop down to the rescue of her and the believers. Uh, and and they, it was even to the point where everybody like gathered for this. People were removing zippers from their right. garments mm-hmm. and uh, getting out rid of their of, bras, by the way. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Removing the wire from their bras mm-hmm. uh, because uh, supposedly that would interfere with the spaceship, mm-hmm. or or perhaps it would just slow uh, slow your your journey down as you tried to make it through uh, security to board the spaceship. She know. divined this, by the way, from automatic writing. Ooh. Which I thought was yeah. kind of funny because that's sort of old fashioned to me. Like that to me, that's like uh, the St. Lances and turn of the century sort of uh, kind of like table raising gig. So uh, obviously the date came mm-hmm. and went and everyone was still here. The world was still continuing uh, right. all around the album. Um, and they kind of faced it. I mean, they did face a, a crisis of faith here. Mm-hmm. What do you do when you've come to believe that the world is going to end when you've invested, when you've done th- stuff like uh Said, well, I'm not, I'm never going to have to pay this credit card off or, well, I'm not going to need a car again. I'm going to sell that and support this, uh, right. this group or cult that I'm, uh, that I've become a part of. Yeah. And you've become, become really committed. Yeah. You've, you're committed to this idea. Um, if not completely, then substantially. Mm-hmm. And then when this core part of your belief system fails on you, what do you do? Well, we're going to take a quick break and we'll find out what you do. This podcast is brought to you by Intel, the sponsors of tomorrow, and the Discovery Channel. At Intel, we believe curiosity is the spark which drives innovation. Join us at curiosity.com and explore the answers to life's questions. All right, we're back, just like we said we would. That was not a false prediction at all. No, came to pass. As the prophecy foretold. We have returned, and we are going to uh, discuss the question of what happens when you predict something, ideally the end of the world Mm -hmm. or some sort of uh, major spiritual reckoning. Uh, what happens when you predict it and it doesn't come to pass? Well, well, wouldn't you say, oh my goodness, this was all, you know, ballyhoo, this was a mistake, um, I need to reassess my life and, uh, perhaps get my job back? Wouldn't, wouldn't that be sort of the logical conclusion? Well, that would, that would be the logical. But like we said, you've already invested a lot in this idea. And, yeah, I've quit uh, my job, I've sold my car. Yeah. And, uh, 
as this was happening, though, with the Seekers uh, back in the 50s, they were out there preaching the, the message. They really believed this. They were not trying to hoard the afterlife and uh, and redemption and aboard, aboard the UFO. They were not hoarding those seats for themselves. Apparently, no, there yeah. was plenty of seating available. Right. And so they were spreading the word. And uh, uh, one individual that heard uh, this and was particularly fascinated was a Stanford University psychologist, Leon Festinger. And uh, so he and some of his colleagues decided to infiltrate the group. Which I love. This is yeah. great, right? Because how else are you going to be able to observe people who, you know, what passes over their face when December 21st comes and goes? Yeah. I mean, on another level, it's kind of jerky, you know, because it's like you're kind of, you're, you're, you're de- messing you're with them. Your, your way into their myths and saying that you believe what they believe. I mean, it's like if you, you know, started going to, uh, sports games with somebody and then you're really getting into them, into the, into the game and you're like, Oh yeah, go Falcons or whatever. And then they were, then finally they were like, actually, I don't really like the Falcons, but I've been studying you this whole time. Yes, you're yeah. right. You're right. But, uh, but, but, but at any rate, from, th- from an experiment, from, from, from a ex- research yes. perspective, from a research perspective, this was, this was an irresistible situation. It's the real deal. Yeah. It gave them the chance to, to infiltrate this group, study from the inside, uh, how they were thinking about the, the end of the world and then study how they behaved once their prediction did not come to pass. Yeah. And so Fessinger found something out uh, that was pretty fascinating it, that when this did come to pass, well, first of all, Dorothy Martin started writing again really quickly, right? We assume mm-hmm. with her automatic writing and she received a message that said, Hey, wow. The aliens have spared Earth because we are so committed that they decided, you know, never mind, we're not going to destroy you, <laughs> uh-huh. which sort of restored people's faith in in, in what was going on. Right. Which I thought I thought the message was going to be the aliens saying, hey, we hit traffic. So we're going to be a little late. Um, yeah. You guys just hold. Some, someone has metal on. <laughs> Take it off. It's totally slowing down the. Our arrival here, but that—that's what was so amazing about that—that that people would double down on their beliefs in the face of of data that was basically telling them that their belief system was wrong. Yeah, because again, you've already invested so much in it. Are you just going to give up? It's, I, I it, the the podcast that we're recording right after this one is going to deal with with sports fandom, and uh, as I, I can't help but wonder if there's a similar case. Like, what do you do when you believe in a sports team absolutely and you support them, and then they fail on you? And they fail on you again and again and again. Well, and I know we're not doing that podcast right now, but I will tell you that a lot of times people will uh, blame it on bad luck uh-huh. or on the other team or instead of actually looking at the raw data and saying, oh, my team is not so good. Hmm. So you can't help but but seek out some sort of explanation that squares with your idea, your original idea. And that's what Fessinger based cognitive dissonance on, correct? Correct. Well, it's, it reminds one of the uh, situation with Harold Camping. Um the the current uh, big rapture scenario that, oh, uh, right. that of course had a lot of play in the summer. This uh, was May twenty first, right? Yes, and and of course it didn't it didn't happen. Mm-hmm. But he immediately said, "Well, l- let me revise. I've done the math again, and actually, yes, this this date was correct, but it was a spiritual judgment and not like the actual judgment. So it was like our the the, the file was settled and stamped uh-huh. by heavenly authorities, and then then the actual apocalypse was. It was just an explore exploratory committee, right? They had completed on the their apocalypse. findings. Yeah. Okay. But basically, he's in in one swoop. He is he's quantifying uh, what has already happened, and and is not backing down from mm-hmm. his previous claim. But he's also excusing away the fact that the world didn't end. Uh, a lot, and he's bumping that date up to when it will supposedly actually end, which of course he had done in the past. I mean, unfortunately for him, they 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 didn't get as many uh, contributions after that point. Um, yeah. 
Uh, they've uh, they've received less money from from their supporters, but they still have supporters. And of course, this guy still supports the idea completely. But yeah, even in the face of the original prediction not coming true, they've they've simply uh, doubled down, uh, revised it a little. And apparently, this is common too when it, when a when a um, when a, an end of the world event does not come to pass, mm-hmm. it's spiritualized. So it's it's suddenly oh, it didn't take place in the real world, but it took place in a spiritual means, or there's some sort of other message. Uh, so. You come up with ways uh, to reinterpret what has happened so that the movement can continue. And in some cases, you end up splitting off and becoming, you know, the, the, the followers end up having to really shift gears and become a slightly different faith. Right. Which, again, I always think that it's interesting, uh, this concept that we are creating our reality every single second. Right. And it's all mm-hmm. just our individual perception. So, yes, there are some things that are, are constants like like a. Uh, you know, the stars and the moon and the sky, but how you interpret what happens underneath the sky is completely up to that individual. Uh, and there was another thing that I read, too, about cognitive dissonance, and they were actually saying that, you know, apocalyptic thinking is not unlike people who are skeptical of global warming or people who are very ardent about the existence of global warming. And that the problem here is not that people don't have the right data. It's not, it's that it's being framed from a values perspective yeah. and not a data perspective. Yeah, you end up with emotions intertwined in there. Yeah. And reasoning ends up intertwined with that emotion. Even something like global warming comes down to, uh, you end up with the emotional political ideas fueled, uh, fueling the end of that personal, uh, Feelings of, of guilt or responsibility mm-hmm. become a part of that as well. Uh, and just to uh, recap, uh, cognitive dissonance, which we, we've covered in the past, um, this is a, a situation in the mind that arises when there's conflict between two opposing thoughts or between expectations and reality. Uh, as we've uh, covered before, the uh, a, a really good example of uh, two opposing thoughts would be if you, uh, if you completely held the belief that, say, um, homosexual impulses pulses were sinful. Mm-hmm. But then you knew, but then you felt homosexual impulses. Like right. the two ideas are, are uh, really conflict one another. Mm-hmm. So how do you end up with this cognitive dissonance where the thing you believe is not the thing that you believe? And then, uh, uh when it comes to, uh, expectations and reality, mm-hmm. that is, you know, that is like the situation we're talking about here. It's kind of like if the, if an individual sets out to become a rock star and doesn't become a rock star, mm-hmm. uh, their expectations and their reality are, are, are clashing. So, they end up with this cognitive dissonance, and uh, and and this is the situation with someone who thinks the world is going to end, and then it doesn't. And the classic example is uh, that, that we keep coming back ar- around to is you know, primordial ancestor in the bush, you know, walking around in the jungle. There are predators or enemies around, and then there's a, a sound in the bushes. Now, this could be one of two things. Basically, you can break it down to either that that uh, sound in the bushes that is a, a threat, a real threat, mm-hmm. or it's nothing. Okay. okay. So, uh, how do we behave when we, when we, when we hear that? I mean, well, how do we behave when something jumps out at us or when suddenly there's a car on the highway where we didn't see one earlier? Um, when there's a knock at the door when we're not expecting someone. Well, you I'm, don't pause to sit there and deliberate, right? Right. Like, and say, oh, okay, what, what rationally is going on here? Because you can basically make two types of errors in cognition here. You can make what is called a type one error or a false positive, And this is when you believe something is real when it is not. So this is, uh, for instance, uh, a friend jumps out at a mon- in, at you in a monster costume, and you realize, oh, it's just a monster costume. It's not a monster. But you react initially like it's a monster mm-hmm. and maybe punch him or apply a few karate chops. Now, And then there's a type 2 error in cognition, and this is a false negative. And this is believing something is not real 
when it is. So this is when a monster jumps out at you and you think it's your friend in a monster mask and you're like, hey, buddy, you need to go like for a high five and then you get eaten. Right. That, so, that's a scenario that uh, not so good. Right. So as you can see, the type two uh, error in cognition, the false negative, that is the scenario most likely to result in death. If you're dealing with uh, some sort of surprise that could be be fatal. Okay, so it makes sense that you put a lot more stock in the type one. Like people right. would probably be more willing to make that error than the type. Yeah, the two. type one error. It's like worst case scenario. Type one error is you just feel kind of stupid because you were scared by something that wasn't real. Yeah. Type two, worst case scenario, you were eaten by a monster. So, uh, which do you think uh, nature selects for? Which do you think has been the uh, has proven the evolutionary advantage? The type one. Right. That is the default error with the human mind. Okay. So, uh, so take that situation with your friend in the monster mask, then extrapolate that to civilization wide, uh, events and to large human created systems and perceived systems. So the idea that a meteorite could hit the earth and destroy everybody, um, we're, we're incredibly likely to make a type one error and so, and, and prepare for the worst there. And then that breaks down in the spiritual and mythic, uh, realm as well. Yeah. Uh, we often end up making this type one error where we're more likely to believe the imagined thing, because if, if it doesn't come to pass, well, we just feel a little foolish. Then we laugh. Right. And as we've discussed in the past, that's where we get the whole benign violation theory of laughter and humor. The idea that when we realize that something that we thought was, was a threat isn't real uh-huh. after we have made that type one error, we just go, ah, ha, ha. And that's our, our way of of letting everyone around us know that that was just a dude in a monster mask and not an actual monster. Right, right. You get the release, right. you know, regardless. So uh, speaking of benign violation theory and uh, and you having brought up the article that you wrote about how to deal with uh, an apocalypse or several different types of apocalypses, mm-hmm. um, let's talk about zombie apocalypse. Oh, yeah, yeah. So this is an interesting one that instantly comes to mind because it's I mean, it's everywhere. Um, the zombie thing will not die no matter how many uh, it's shots it takes. Yeah, it just keeps crawling and lurching and sometimes running ahead. So we have things like uh, The Walking Dead on TV. It's mm-hmm. it, like it pre- the se- season two uh, premiered and it was like huge. Everybody was watching it. I mean, you, you just look around you. Zombies are everywhere. And why? It, it, well, it's a, it's another apocalyptic scenario, mm-hmm. not one that most of anyone really believes in unless zombies are somehow tied into your particular religious view of the uh, the rapture and you know, maybe it is. But for the most part, this is like a purely fictional idea that we're just right. obsessed with. We, we, we like the, the part of our, our brains that love apocalypse and and are more likely to buy into apocalypse. We, we can't help but think about this scenario. And uh, I think it's really interesting to sort of break down why that is. Chuck Klosterman had a bit. Uh, I believe this came out last year. Uh, uh, around the same time that the first season of The Walking Dead came out. And uh, and he had some interesting thoughts uh, in his article, My Zombie, Myself, Why Modern Life Feels Rather Undead. And uh, he said, uh, every zombie war is a war of attrition. It's always a numbers game, and it's more repetitive than complex. In other words, zombie killing is philosophically similar to reading and deleting 400 work emails on a Monday morning <laughs> or filling out paperwork that only generates more paperwork or following Twitter gossip out of obligation, or performing tedious tasks in which the only true risk is being consumed by the avalanche. The principal downside to any zombie attack is that the zombies will never stop coming. The principal downside to life is that you will never be finished with whatever it is you do. So that was his kind of take on on why the modern audience is so into the zombie idea. My own thinking about it, because I find zombies interesting, if, even if the idea is a little played out at this point. Mm-hmm. But uh, I can't help but think a, a large part of it is because the zombie is the 
in the same way that apocalypse scenarios appeal to us on, on kind of a, a liberation frontiersman mm-hmm. uh, standpoint. And, you know, that's like, oh, the world comes to an end. And now I'm just it's just me and my survival skills against nature. Right. And even though that's a battle that most of us are not prepared for at all, mm-hmm. um, or we're certainly not as prepared for as we might think uh, we would be. Um, it's, it's, there's something romantic about it. You know, it's kind of like that whole, what if I were to leave everything I own and just drive off into the sunset? Well, and it's a safe place to play out your fears, right? Right. Because talking about benign violation theory, I mean, you have zombies, you probably can outrun them, right? Right. And, uh, even though, uh, probably for every five you kill, there's another 10 that pop up like a hydra head, much like Chuck Klosterman was saying with emails. Um, you know, it's, it's something that, um, that you can still battle against. Um, it's not the real apocalypse. Right. And the zombies themselves, I mean, so many of the things that we fear in modern life are rather ethically complex. Like the idea, like even if it's something as simple as crime or terrorism, well, mm-hmm. I mean, not, these are not simple, but these is an example like crime or terrorism, for example. Those are complex um situations and you can't just but 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 with zombies it's rather simple the zombie is an undead monster and if it comes at you you can shoot it in the head or you can hit it with a baseball bat and then wham one part of that problem is solved life is rarely as simple as that so there's i think there's a fantasy in your life becoming that kind of conflict where there's a clear-cut solution and uh well I, i mean and for some people i mean there's something attractive about the idea that that violence is that kind of uh, a solution. Well, it's ethical killing, right? Yeah. Because they're already dead. And, I mean, you're, you're just trying to survive, right? Yeah, you and, can sort of, like, walk the masculine um, war dog inside you without actually having to um, feast yourself on uh, scenes of human violence and deprivation. Yeah, or, or, or as a feminist, you can take up arms and, and right. battle against zombies and... Uh, Go on to sustain life yeah. for the human race. Yeah, and, and you don't have to worry with uh, all these ethical concerns of uh, murder and, uh, and self-defense. So I don't know. I'm sure you're aware of this, but in Atlanta and, and other cities, there is going to be a zombie 5K, I believe, in February. <laughs> I, uh, I'd forgotten about that. I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, so are you going to shamble in it? No, are I they don't fast know. Because or slow zombies? That was my question because oh. I was like, is this 28 days later zombies where they're, you know, they're able to learn and they get really fast because I really don't want someone to tackle me and start drooling brains or fake brains all over me. Yeah. I know that's weird <laughs> for that to be bothersome, but, um, but I don't mind if they're just kind of shuffling after me. Huh. That could be fun. Well, they do a walk here uh, every year or they have uh, for the last several years where um, like a bunch of people will gather in zombie makeup generally on like a Friday afternoon. So it's, I mean, I've never, is this different from the uh, little five points parade? Yes, this is different. Okay. This uh, uh, little five points parade is a, is a cool little local Halloween parade that we have. That's uh, uh, that I hope to go to again this year. It's kind of disorganized, but not like zombie disorganized. Uh, but it's the, pretty wonderful, actually. It's pretty wonderful. That's what makes it so so wonderful. It's kind of disorganized. It's it's yeah. not like this huge, hugely thought out parade that it just uh, and it's not like just uh, you know spontaneous either. It's, yeah, there's some degree of planning, but it's pretty loose and fun. It's um, like legions of zombies and pirates and. Yeah, all, all sorts. But of the things. zombie walk is something slightly different, where people dress up as zombies and sort of shamble across town on an afternoon. But okay, well, so Holly Fry of Pop Stuff, yeah. is actually training for the. Well, she's a runner, but she's training for this 5K. Oh, is she? so so we'll get an update, I'm sure, pretty soon on the uh, zombie 5K. That explains all those questionable lunches she's been having, you know. Yes, yeah, well, she's preparing. Very herself, gray and you know? with bits of uh, human hair stuck in them. Yeah, know? yeah. yeah. Uh, and you thought it was some sort of like vestigial uh, cafe. 
of delights. Yeah, the Vestigial Cafe just opened up down the street. It's, yeah, it's, yeah. It's the newest thing with the foodies and hipsters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can get some sort of like tumor with a tooth in it. Ugh. Ugh sorry. But hey, I mean, it's it's Halloween-ish, so yeah, we can talk about well, yeah, this kind of stuff. Post-Halloween. People are still riding high on it. Um, I want to leave uh, this conversation with a quote, if I may. Okay. This is from New Scientist and talking about the apocalypse and why it's important to people. It says, the ap- apocalyptic visions also help us make sense of an often seemingly senseless world. In the face of confusion and annihilation, we need restitution and reassurance. We want to feel that no matter how chaotic, oppressive, or evil the world is, all will be made right in the end. The apocalypse as history's end is made acceptable with the belief that there will be a new beginning. The That's psychology awesome. behind it. Awesome. And a nice pithy paragraph. Well, speaking of new beginnings, I'm going to reach inside the listener mail uh, bag now, and I'm going to retrieve a particular email from listener Mike that deals with Red Bull, um, or more specifically, the idea of Southeast Asian Red Bull. Because uh, I mentioned in a previous podcast about how uh, when I was in Thailand, I mm-hmm. had a Thai Red Bull and how it was like a totally different experience than American Red Bull. It was uh, sweeter. Um, it was insanely like powerful. It like you, you felt your eyes do that uh, incredible Hulk thing uh, when you drank it. And uh, this sounds like some sort of hashish drink. Yeah, it, it was Green weird. Fatties. I don't know what was in it. But I but I, I asked listeners like, hey, has anyone else had this experience, or did I buy a tainted Red mm-hmm. Bull and just had a, a weird experience with it? Well, Mike uh, writes in and he says, hey guys, I'm 15 and a big fan. I heard Robert talking about the Thai Red Bull and had a very Lost esque flashback. This summer, my mom and dad and I took a two-week trip to Cambodia, very cool, uh, to be with some missionary friends and help out with their hospital, even cooler. Uh, Red Bull was everywhere in Cambodia. We were pretty close to the border of Thailand. I bought some of it in a little eight-ounce can, and it was definitely how Robert described it. It was much sweeter, and it was uncarbonated. Fantastic stuff. I'll include a picture of it uh, so you guys can see if uh, any of the cans look right. Like, was the Red Bull in, a, in the medicine bottle carbonated? Um, okay, so I looked at the picture, and it looks it looks different from what I had, but it's been several years, so who knows? The branding may have changed, and also Cambodian Red Bull might be slightly different from... Thai Red Bull? I don't know. But I have a suspicion that the, the, the chemicals uh, were very similar. It's possible. I have heard that Coke in Mexico is far different from Coke in the United States. Yeah, well, it's actually the sugar better. thing, right? Yeah, yeah. It's like it's made with real sugar versus uh, a high fructose corn syrup. Yeah. And I don't remember if it was carbonated. I just remember that I felt carbonated after I drank <laughs> it. Um, and we have a couple of other uh, emails here I'm going to go through real quick. Paul writes in from uh, Australia. says, uh, good day. It's Paul from Australia. We're about the only thing that won't kill you is our weird, tiny, stingless bees. <laughs> anyway, I've been listening with rapt enjoyment since episode one and have wanted to comment on almost every topic covered. I spend many hours each day driving, and I usually listen in large batches, however, and have just never gotten around to it. So I put down my panda sandwich with its side order of popcorn cicadas, popped a few gummy bears in my mouth instead, wiped my mind clear, chased out the devil and his fiendish dubstep, and wrote this of what I can only assume is my own free will. I had an interesting moment whilst listening to the podcast on memory when Julie was reading out the list. When she came to the test words and read the trick word sweet, I quickly raced through my memory palace, noticed that sweet wasn't there, and immediately drew an uppercase Q on my forehead, uh, tail on the left, of course. 
Oops, gotta go. My larval humans are whining about saber tooths on the subway again, and you know how annoying that can be. I'll write again soon if I get enough uh, of a dopamine hit from this later. Paul, P.S. Lady Gaga. <laughs> I love that. Wow, yeah, he he was able to wrap so many references in. I think he just covered like a, about a hundred podcasts in there, or yeah. at least maybe I don't know, maybe uh, sixty or so. Nicely done, Paul. That's yes. going up in my cubicle. Yes, I like the way this man's uh, mind works. Here's another one from Timothy. Timothy writes in, Robert and Julie, thank you for this podcast. It's funny that you mentioned how social stimulation helps fuel creativity during uh, this episode. He's talking about splendid isolation. Because that is exactly what the uh, simulated social interaction of listening to your podcast did for me. Please allow me to explain. I've had a book floating around in my head for a decade or so and have never really mustered the creative energy to write as opposed to the dozens of other projects I find myself involved in. Amazingly, your description of social isolation and its effects were identical to the major themes of the story and completely validated my creative instincts. That encouraging knowledge gave me a vivid image of the characters I haven't captured for a long time. Thanks again. I now know how to find my inspiration in the real-life drama of psychology. Uh, and that, that was again from Tim. So that's awesome. I, I love it when we hear um, hear accounts of how our listeners have taken something or, uh, that we've covered and have managed to turn that into some new creative energy uh, or, or some new inspiration uh, in their uh, creative life. So, yeah, uh, I love that too. Yeah. I always think that there are so many different novels that uh, could come from some of the research that we do. Yes, yes. I think every basically there's a best-selling novel in every episode. And I just hope that the people who write those best-selling novels and option them uh, option the screenplay, uh, do they just remember uh, you and I? And uh, that's right. And just uh, you know, float us a few bucks uh, when the millions roll in. Or, you know, just treat uh, us to a dinner. I don't know. I was going to say a nice postcard. Yeah, or uh, like at one of those cheese baskets. Well, I would. You don't eat cheese, but. You can send me the cheese basket when the screenplay uh, is, is, is optioned for sure. Hey, so if you have anything you would like to share with us, uh, the first stop would be Twitter and Facebook. Uh, we're on both of those as Blow the Mind. Uh, we regularly update those feeds with cool links, uh, tidbits about what we're doing, and we'd love to hear from you. And you can always get in touch with us by sending an email to blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House of Work staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. Mm-hmm.